Would you join me in prayer? Father, we come to you this morning and we praise you for who you are. You are the good and wise ruler over all things. You created all things and you sustain all things. You're working all things together for good and for your glory. But Lord, this morning we approach you with heavy hearts as we consider the brokenness and fallenness of this world. A week ago, we read the report of sexual abuse and cover-up and mistreatment of victims that has occurred within our own convention of churches. Father, our hearts are broken for all victims of sexual abuse, and our hearts are inflamed with a righteous indignation against all those who have abused your image bearers and all those who have sought to cover it up and preserve their own power and reputation above caring for those who have been abused. We pray, Lord, that you would bring justice and healing to the Southern Baptist Convention. We pray that you would give our leaders and our church wisdom in how to handle these findings in a biblical way that honors you and truly cares for survivors of sexual abuse. And then, Lord, a few days later, we heard of another mass shooting of 19 children and two teachers who were brutally and senselessly murdered. God, we can hardly bear to think of such a thing. 19 innocent children slaughtered. Parents sent off to school and they will never see again in this life. What pain and unimaginable sorrow so many are going through right now. So God, we pray that somehow, some way that you would bring hope and healing in the midst of suffering that you would somehow use the darkness of tragedy to make the glorious light of the gospel go forth. And Lord, even just this weekend, as we have a long weekend, Memorial Day weekend, we're, we're mindful of the fallenness and brokenness of the world that does not have peace, but has war. And we remember the brave men and women who have made the ultimate sacrifice for our country by laying down their own lives. Father, amidst all this suffering, we remember that you are on your throne. We remember that your ultimate answer for sin was to send your son, Jesus Christ, to die on the cross and suffer your full wrath against the sin of your people. And Lord, we look forward to the day when Christ will return and will make all things new, where your people will live with you in perfect unity forever and ever. Come quickly, Lord Jesus. It's in your name that we pray. Amen. Amen. If you have your Bibles, I want to invite you to open up to Psalm 133. We're going to be looking at Psalm 133 and 134 this morning as we continue our journey through the Psalms. Psalm 133 begins, Behold how good and pleasant it is when brothers dwell together in unity. So Psalm 133 opens, and as the father of two, almost three sons, I can tell you that that is true. It is good and pleasant when brothers dwell together in unity. It's good and pleasant when my boys get along. But the opposite is also true. It is neither good nor pleasant when brothers do not dwell in unity. When there is disunity and division among brothers, it can be disastrous. And this is the truth that the author of this psalm knows very well. King David had sons who did not dwell in unity. One of his sons, Absalom, you remember the story, murdered his brother Amnon. 
Another of his sons, Adonijah, would try to steal the kingdom from his brother Solomon. And this theme of brotherly conflict does not begin with David's sons. David himself experienced this sort of disunity among his own brothers. You remember when Jesse, David's father, sent David to the front lines to visit his brothers who had gone off to war with Saul and they were facing Goliath. His brothers did not receive him well. They did not receive him kindly. It says that their anger was kindled against David for speaking up. So David personally experienced this sort of brotherly conflict, but, we, but David also knew his Bible. Where do we find the very first set of brothers in the Bible? Cain and Abel. Cain and Abel, right? We find Cain murdering his brother Abel. And this theme continues as you keep reading. We get to the patriarchs, and Abraham has two sons, Ishmael and Isaac, and we find conflict there. We find Ishmael mocking Isaac. Isaac had two sons, Jacob and Esau, and here we find conflict starting in the womb. And that conflict continues for the vast majority of their lives. Jacob then has 12 sons, and we know this story. Joseph's brothers hated him so much that they wanted to kill him. They threw him into a pit, and then they decided to sell him into slavery. And so it is not good when brothers do not dwell together in unity. But here in Psalm 133, we have David celebrating unity. Oh, how good it is. And the brothers that he's speaking about here are not just physical brothers. These are spiritual brothers. This is the people of God. And so he's saying, oh, how good and pleasant it is when the people of God, brothers and sisters in the faith, dwell together in unity. Now, the immediate context of this psalm is that the people of Israel are gathering together in Jerusalem. We don't know the exact occasion for when this psalm was written. It could have been during one of the three annual feasts that was celebrated in Jerusalem. It could have been after the civil war between the house of Saul and the house of David had ended. Or it could have been after Absalom's rebellion had ended. We don't know exactly when it was, but the picture here is of one united kingdom. After all the turmoil and disunity that Israel had faced, they were one united kingdom under King David. And David says, behold, how good and pleasant it is when brothers dwell together in unity. But even this unity wouldn't last long. After King David's son Solomon died, what happened? The kingdom of Israel split into two, the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom, bringing disunity and division once more. Then eventually both kingdoms were exiled in a foreign land. And so David is longing for something greater here, a true and better unity, a unity that the Messiah would bring. And to see that, we have to take a step back for a moment. So one thing we need to understand about the book of the Psalms is that the Psalms are not just a random collection of songs. The book of Psalms is a carefully composed and constructed book, and it tells us a story. The section we're in right now is called the Songs of Ascent. The Songs of Ascent. The Songs of Ascent are 15 psalms, Psalm 120 to Psalm 134, in which the people of Israel would sing as they journeyed to Jerusalem, as they went up, as they ascended to the temple to worship God. These are also called pilgrim songs. As the people made their pilgrimage from faraway cities to the holy city, they would sing these songs to one another as they went. And so what do you think the purpose of singing these songs was? 
Maybe if you're like us in the family, we, we sing some songs to our kids to kind of keep that brotherly unity that we're talking about earlier. So maybe there was some of that, but I think there's a, there's a greater picture here. There's something greater going on. These songs of ascent have a purpose. They were focusing God's people's attention on God and pointing them to the Messiah that would come. And we see this very clearly in Psalm 132. So just look one psalm ahead, Psalm 132. This is the centerpiece of the songs of ascent. And this psalm follows the account of the Davidic covenant that was found in 2 Samuel 7, where the Lord promised that David would have a son who would sit on the throne forever. Look at verse 11 of Psalm 132. Verse 11. The Lord swore to David a sure oath from which he will not turn back. One of the sons of your body I will set on your throne. And then skip down to verse 17 of Psalm 132. There I will make a horn to sprout for David. I've prepared a lamp for my anointed. His enemies I will clothe with shame, but on him his crown will shine. And so Psalm 132 is celebrating God's promise to send the promised seed of the woman, the promised son of Abraham, the promised son of David, Christ the king. That's the hope of Israel, a future Messiah. And so immediately following Psalm 132, we get to Psalm 133, and we see a blessing that the promised seed of David will bring to his people. When he comes, that promised seed, that promised son of David, the Messiah, brothers will dwell together in unity. It will be like the unity that Israel enjoyed under King David, but it will be even better. And so now, living after that in the new covenant, King Jesus has brought a true and better unity, an everlasting unity. And so we say, behold how good and pleasant it is for brothers in the church to dwell in unity. This sort of unity is ours in Christ. This sort of unity should characterize the church. The church, our church, should be known for its unity. Against the dark backdrop of a divided world, the church should stand in contrast. People from every tribe and tongue and people and nation. People from every sort of background imaginable. Rich and poor. Male and female. Slave and free. Jew and Gentile, black and white, Hispanic and Asian, zealots and tax collectors, Republicans and Democrats, politicians and picketers, prostitutes and Pharisees, drug addicts and drag queens, monks and murderers, legalists and lawbreakers. The church is a community of sinners saved by the grace of Christ. A redeemed people who have repented of their sins, left behind their old identities, and now follow King Jesus. That's who we are. That's who we are this morning. Amen? Because Christ has come, we who were walking in darkness have seen a great light. God has delivered us from the kingdom of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of his beloved son. He has taken us who were dead in our sins and made us alive in Christ Jesus. He shows his love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. For our sake, he made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God. We were therefore buried with him in baptism in his death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. 
Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is what? A new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. For in one spirit, we were all baptized into one body, Jews or Greeks, slaves or free. So we, though many, are one body in Christ and individually members of one another. This is who we are, church. And it makes no sense. This sort of unity, this sort of community makes no sense apart from the finished work of Jesus Christ. And when the church displays this sort of unity, it's an invitation to praise the one true and living God. So that's the title of this morning's sermon, Unity, an Invitation to Praise. In our time together this morning, we're gonna look at three points in the text about our unity. And then we're gonna look at four applications of how Christ teaches us to display that sort of unity. So let's dive in together. Let's look at Psalm 133, verse one. Behold, how good and pleasant it is when brothers dwell in unity. So first point, unity is good and pleasant. Unity is good and pleasant. Not everything that's good is pleasant. When you were a kid, your parents told you to eat your vegetables. Why? Because they are good for you. Good for you. Or to take your medicine. Why? Because it's good for you. But as a kid, neither of those things are pleasant going down. And sometimes in our minds, that's how we can treat these sort of biblical commands and principles. Sure, I know it's good, but it's not pleasant. We so often see more duty than delight more sacrifice than satisfaction. But that's not at all the picture of the biblical way of life. This is good and pleasant. God's design for us is good, it is right, and it's also pleasant. It brings us joy and fulfillment and satisfaction. We were designed by God for God. And so when we operate according to his standards, he satisfies us. And that's what this sort of unity is. It's hard work, yes. It's much easier from a human standpoint to build unity off of lesser things. Preferences, hobbies, life stage, jobs, political party. But how fragile is that sort of unity? Change one thing and that sort of unity disappears. There's nothing supernatural about that sort of unity. Non-Christians can have that sort of unity. But the unity built on Christ is everlasting. It's good and it's pleasant. This is supernatural unity is a gift from God. This is a unity that's rooted in God and in the praise of him. I want you to see where else the Bible uses these two words together, good and pleasant. And so look down, just uh, maybe flip the page to Psalm 135. Psalm 135, verse three. It says, praise the Lord. For the Lord is good. Sing praise to his name, for it is pleasant. Then flip over to Psalm 147, verse 1. Psalm 147, verse 1. Praise the Lord, for it is good to sing praises to our God. For it is pleasant, and a song of praise is fitting. And so do you, do you see that? Do you see how those two things work together? We should praise the Lord because the Lord is good. It is right to praise the Lord. We are commanded to praise the Lord. 
But is that just a duty that we're commanded to that we have to obey begrudgingly? Or is there delight involved? When we praise the Lord, are we sacrificing the things that we really want to be doing? Or is praising the Lord the only thing that brings you true satisfaction? No, it is good and pleasant to praise the Lord. He's created us and redeemed us to glorify him and enjoy him forever. Taste and see that the Lord is good. He did not call us to do that alone, just individually as Christians. He called, that, he called us into a community with one another and he's granted us this supernatural unity in the gospel of Jesus Christ. This sort of unity is not only good, it's also pleasant, right? You don't need a spoonful of sugar to help this medicine go down. If you add anything to it, it only cheapens it, right? This is not a gospel plus unity, Gospel plus shared interests. Gospel plus preferences. Gospel plus shared politics. No, this is a gospel unity bought by the blood of Christ and applied by his Holy Spirit. That brings us to our second point. Unity is like oil and dew. Unity is like oil and dew. So look back at Psalm 133. And David uses two illustrations to describe this sort of unity. First illustration is oil. So look at verse two. David says, it is like the precious oil on the head, running down on the beard, on the beard of Aaron, running down on the collar of his robes. So David says that this unity of the people of God is like the anointing oil being poured on Aaron as he he is anointed for service to God as the high priest. And what what do you notice about this illustration? This is a messy picture, right? Notice the imagery. Notice the repeated phrase twice. It says running down. So this is not just a little bit of oil just on the top of the head and you're done. No, it's, it's an excessive amount of oil. This precious, sacred, aromatic oil is poured all over Aaron's head and it runs down over his beard and it runs down over his clothing. And remember, just have the picture in mind. You may not have this picture in mind, but the, the people of God did of the high priest. What is the high priest wearing? He's got special clothing that he has to wear that's commanded by God. And he has a breastplate. And does anybody know what's on that breastplate? 12 precious stones. And those 12 precious stones represent what? The 12 tribes of Israel. Yeah. And so as the oil is poured over his head and down his beard, it covers the 12 tribes of Israel. It covers the people of God. It doesn't just cover him. It covers all of the people of God. The kingdom of God They were a kingdom of priests. Israel was a holy nation set apart for God. Now Aaron was the first high priest, but who was the last high priest? Jesus. Jesus. Jesus is our great high priest, the one mediator between God and man. And Jesus wasn't only anointed with oil, he was anointed with the Holy Spirit and with power. And just like there is no lack of oil and it flowed down to the people, Jesus anoints his people with the Holy Spirit and power. Acts 1 verse 8, Jesus said, and you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. We, the church, are the kingdom of priests. We are a holy nation set apart unto God, united by the power of his Holy Spirit. So that's the first illustration. The second illustration is do. Look at verse three of Psalm 133. David says, this unity is like the dew of Hermon, which falls on the mountains of Zion. 
So a little bit of geography here. Mount Hermon, which was Israel's tallest mountain, is about 120 miles north of Jerusalem. And it sits at 9,232 feet high. Mount Zion, on the other hand, is the highest point in Jerusalem, but it's only 2,500 feet tall. Mount Hermon has rain and snow and dew. It's got this life-giving moisture on it. And David says the unity of the people of God is like all of that life-giving moisture from Mount Hermon falling on Mount Zion. Now, that's not physically possible. Mount Zion was a much lower, drier mountain. It didn't have this sort of life-giving moisture. And the dew from Mount Hermon couldn't travel 120 miles down and make it physically all the way to Mount Zion. So what's David talking about here? Well, let's finish reading verse 3. For there the Lord has commanded the blessing, life forevermore. So let's, let's fill this in. Let's look back at Psalm 132 again. Remember, these are all connected. Look at verse 13 of Psalm 132. For the Lord has chosen Zion. He has desired it for his dwelling place. So Mount Zion is where God dwelt. Mount Zion is where God met with man. Mount Zion is where the people of Aaron, the priests, mediated between God and man in the temple and then in the tabernacle. And one day, David is pointing forward to this day, one day, God would tabernacle among man there. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. Jesus, the eternal son of God, would come from the highest heaven and he would descend further than 120 miles, lower than 2,500 feet, and he would become a man. He would live a perfect life, a perfect obedience to God and his law. He would die in Jerusalem among the mountains of Zion, a death that we deserve to die suffering the full wrath of God toward our sins. On the cross, Jesus would be our high priest. He would mediate between a holy God and a sinful man. But this time, the sacrifice was not a bull or a goat, but it was the lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. He would be buried, and three days later, he would rise again, showing that he was victorious over sin and death and the enemy, and that his payment for sin was accepted by God. And so Jesus purchased the blessing for us. Jesus purchased life forevermore for us. All who repent of their sins and turn in faith toward Jesus Christ are reconciled to God and to one another forever. So David is saying here in Psalm 133 that the unity of God's people is like the life-giving dew of Christ coming from heaven to Jerusalem. By his blood, we have peace with God and with his people. In him, we have life forevermore. That's good news. We are made one with Christ and one with one another. And one day, Christ our King will return to Mount Zion. And there we will dwell with God and his people forever and ever, free from sin and death. Go back to Psalm 132, verse 13 through 16. We get to see a picture of that. Psalm 132, verse 13 through 16. For the Lord has chosen Zion. He has desired it for his dwelling place. This is my resting place forever. Here I will dwell for I have desired it. I will abundantly bless her provisions. I will satisfy her poor with bread. Her priests I will clothe with salvation and her saints will shout for joy. So that's our future hope. The new Jerusalem where God will dwell with his people. But do you know where we can see a picture of that right now? 
Look around. Look around. The church. The church. We are living in the already, not yet. We have the oil and the dew here and now. Christ purchased this sort of unity and it's given to us as a gift. It's not something we can earn. It's not something we can manufacture. Christ grants his church supernatural unity and this unity is an invitation to praise. That brings us to our third point. Unity is a call to worship and a benediction. Unity is a call to worship and a benediction. Let's look at Psalm 134, the final song of ascent. Let's read verses one through two. Come, bless the Lord, all you servants of the Lord who stand by night in the house of the Lord. Lift up your hands to the holy place and bless the Lord. And so this is a call to worship. This is an invitation to praise the Lord, Yahweh, the one true and living God, the covenant-making, promise-keeping God of Israel. Come, bless the Lord. Who, do, who receives this invitation? All you servants of the Lord. And so this psalm was specifically directed to the priests serving in the temple. But remember, we're a kingdom of priests. The Lord is the one who initiates worship with us. We don't seek God. Rather, he seeks after us. He calls us out of darkness into marvelous light. He calls us by his word to worship him. And he calls us not just individually, not just me and God, but corporately. He calls us to gather into local churches on the Lord's day to worship him according to his word. That's what we've been doing all morning. And as we do that week by week, we are a display of God's glory to the world. As we display the sort of unity we've been talking about, the community of believers from all sorts of backgrounds, united by the gospel, we become a compelling community. When the world sees our oneness and our love for one another, they too are invited to praise the one true and living God through his son, Jesus Christ. We know this is true because this is what Jesus prayed for and all of Jesus' prayers are answered. John 17, hear these words. John 17, verses 20 through 23, Jesus is praying. He says, do not ask for these only, the disciples here on earth while, while Jesus was on earth, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. That's us. Jesus prayed for us that they may all be one just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us. So that, listen to this, so that we are, we're one, right? Praying for unity, why? So that the world may believe that you have sent me. What an amazing picture. Our unity is an invitation. By our unity and our love for one another, this world will know that God sent Jesus Christ. Jesus continues, he says, the glory that you have given me, I've given to them, that they may be one even as we are one. I in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one. Why? So that the world may know that you sent me and love them even as you loved me. So do you hear that? Our unity in Christ is an invitation for this unbelieving world to believe. An invitation for those far from God to be brought near an invitation for those who feel unloved to experience the life-changing love of Jesus Christ. And if you are here today and you don't know that love, accept that invitation. Believe in Christ and you will be saved. 
And as you accept that invitation, your whole life changes. Praising God is no longer a duty, it's a delight. It's good and pleasant to live for God. As we accept this invitation to bless God, what happens next? He will bless us. That's the benediction. Let's read verse three of Psalm 134. May the Lord bless you from Zion, he who made heaven and earth. Now, to be clear, this is not a blessing of health, wealth, and prosperity. God does not promise those sorts of things, but he does promise the blessedness of forgiveness and the blessedness of eternal life and the blessedness of joy and satisfaction and fulfillment in him and the blessedness of true everlasting unity with his people. The God who made heaven and earth will bless his people. So we've seen unity is good and pleasant. Unity is like oil and dew. Unity is a call to worship and a benediction. But the enemy hates unity. He will do everything he can to destroy unity. Martin Luther said, where there are dissensions, divisions, and discord, there is the dwelling of Satan. But not only does our enemy hate unity, our flesh still fights against unity. Instead of putting others first and building the body up, we put ourselves first and tear the body down. But like we've said, this unity is already ours in Christ Jesus. We don't have to work for it. We don't have to earn it. It's a gift that's already been given. And it's ours to guard and to pursue. We are to be the dwelling place of God, not the dwelling place of Satan. So let's look to his word to build us up into his holy dwelling place. This morning, James read our call to worship from Ephesians chapter four. Go ahead and turn there. I wanna point out a couple things in Ephesians chapter four. Ephesians chapter four, verse one through three says, I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. How? With all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the spirit and the bond of peace. Eager to maintain. That's our job. We must protect the unity that is ours in Christ Jesus. Now skip down and look at verse 11 of Ephesians 4. Verse 11 through 13. Paul says that Jesus gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. And so there's a unity that we've already been given that we must maintain, and then there's a unity that we're going to. This is where we're headed. Christ gave his church, the pastors and the members, one another to build one another up, to speak the truth in love to one another, to equip one another, to sanctify one another, to train one another until we all attain this sort of unity. And that's a continual process that we're not gonna get there, right? We're not gonna get there until the day that Christ returns and we live with one another in perfect unity forever. But until that day, until that day, we must work hard to protect the unity we've been given and to pursue the unity that is ours in Christ. And so in our time remaining, I wanna give you four applications. 
four ways that our flesh seeks to destroy unity, and then four ways that Christ teaches us to display that unity. So first way of application is that Christ turns pride into humility. Christ turns pride into humility. This is the most important category, I think, and it, and it sets the stage for all the rest. So all the others we could say are just applications of this first application. Turn to Philippians 2 with me. Philippians chapter 2. We're going to see clearly how Christ gives us this sort of humility. Philippians 2, verses 1 through 11 says, So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy. So real quick, Paul is not asking questions here, right? He's, he's making declarative statements. Since there is encouragement in Christ, because there is comfort from love and participation in the Spirit, because you have these things in Christ, what is he commanding them to do? Verse 2. Complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. That's the unity we're after. Verse three, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interest of others. So to have this sort of unity, we must put others before ourselves. We must lay aside our own desires, our own wants, our own preferences for the sake of others. We cannot be like Diotrephes, who John says loves to put himself first. No, who should we be like? Jesus. Look at verse five. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. This mind is ours. This unity is ours. This humility is ours in Christ Jesus. Verse six, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. We will never condescend as low as Jesus did. He's God, no beginning and no end. He had all the riches of heaven, but he set it aside and he made himself low. He became human. God became man. Just think about that for a second. It would have been enough for him to come and to be a rich man or a king. And that would still be an immeasurable dissension from the throne of heaven to an earthly throne. But no, he went lower still. He took the form of a servant, gentle and lowly, meek and humble, a carpenter, no place to lay his head. He then humbled himself even further and died on a criminal's cross, the most humiliating sort of death imaginable. Now that's our example of humility. Now let's do a little bit of self-evaluation. Does that sort of humility characterize your life? Our flesh fights against that sort of humility with every fiber of its being. Our flesh wants to be first. It wants pride to win. It wants to exalt self. But this is not the way of Jesus. It's not the mind of Christ. Jesus taught us that the way up is down. That the way to life is through death. Remember the words of Jesus. 
Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. If anyone should come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. We no longer live for ourselves. We are not our own, for we were bought with a price. We live for Christ and for the good of others. We must decrease and he must increase. Let's finish out Philippians 2, verses 9 through 11. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. So the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. That's the end goal. He receives all the glory, not to us, not to us, but to your name be the glory. Christ has taken our pride and he's granted us humility. Second, Jesus turns racism and classism into neighbor love and servanthood. Jesus turns racism and classism into neighbor love and servanthood. Because of the natural egotism in our sinful hearts, the pride that thinks that we're the best and we must be first, our hearts also naturally produce a sort of ethnocentrism. The sinful belief that people who are like us are best and must be first. We can so easily, even unintentionally, look down upon others who look different than us or who speak different than us or who act different than us or who have a different socioeconomic status than us. And that's not a new problem. That's not a new problem that faces our generation. It's all over the Bible. Jews and Gentiles hated one another. They called each other dogs. And for the Jews, even worse than the Gentiles were the Samaritans. They were a mixed people. The Jews who were exiled had intermarried with Gentiles and their offspring became the Samaritans. And you remember the story when a lawyer asked Jesus, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus pointed them to the law and the prophets. What does the law and prophets say? And the man answered, love God and love neighbor. Uh, and Jesus says, do this and you will live. And then it says, the lawyer, desiring to justify himself, asked another question. Who is my neighbor? What does Jesus do? You know the story. He tells the story of the good Samaritan. So Jesus calls us to this sort of neighbor love, even among our earthly ethnic enemies. Or you remember when the disciples were arguing about who would be the greatest in the kingdom, who would sit on Jesus's right and left. Do you remember what Jesus says in response? Matthew 20, beginning in verse 25, says Jesus called to him and said, you know that the rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them and their great ones exercise authority over them. It shall not be so among you, but whoever would be great among you must be your servant and whoever would first be first among you must be your slave even as the son of man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. So we should not seek to exalt ourselves. If God has blessed us with a high position, we should not lord it over others or look down upon others or seek to make ourselves as high as possible. No, we follow our savior and we make ourselves low. We become a servant because we don't deserve any of this. We don't deserve salvation. Turn to Ephesians 2, verse 12 through 22. Let's see how Paul addressed ethnic and class division. He reminds them of the gospel. Ephesians 2, verse 12 through 22. 
Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenant of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and preached peace to you who are far off and peace to those who are near. For through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So then, you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him, you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. That's the sort of unity that Christ has purchased. Let us not set up dividing walls that Christ himself tore down. Galatians 3, 28. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male or female for you are all one in Christ Jesus. Christ has taken our racism and classism and granted us neighbor love and servanthood. Third point of application, Christ turns political and theological divisiveness into convictional civility. Christ turns political and theological divisiveness into convictional civility. Now, I want to be very clear here from the start. There are both political and theological issues in which we should divide over. Christians are people of the book and we believe what the Bible teaches. So I'm not talking about those things in which the Bible clearly speaks. I'm talking about things in which the Bible does not speak clearly about and which Christians are free to disagree on. This is freedom of conscience or Christian liberty. So just think about this for a second. Imagine the picture Jesus calls 12 disciples and among them we have a zealot and a tax collector. That's about as far as you can get, politically speaking. Zealots wanted to overthrow Roman rule, and tax collectors had joined the Roman rule. Jesus also had Jews and Gentiles and Samaritans following him. Interwoven with their ethnic identities were also political and theological ideas. And this, these different ideas caused no shortage of controversies in the early church, as we read about in the New Testament. But here's the thing, followers of Jesus had left behind their old identities to follow Jesus. No longer were they zealots and tax collectors. No longer were they first identified as Jews or Gentiles or Samaritans. They were one in Christ. And they agreed on the essential things. But because they were human, those identities and ideas still probably colored much of their thinking. And even as Christians, they still came to genuine disagreements with one another. So, here's the question. What should Christians do when they disagree on something that's not clearly laid out in Scripture? What should we do? In the political sphere, I think it's helpful to think of straight line issues and jagged line issues. Straight line issues are issues in which you can draw a straight line from the Bible to the political issue. These are things like abortion and LGBTQ and segregation and American slavery, those sorts of things. The Bible speaks clearly about these 
issues. Abortion is murder, and so abortion is sin, and so Christians should not support abortion. Homosexuality and transgenderism go against God's good design, that humans are created male and female, and that marriage is designed to be between one man and one woman. So homosexuality and transgenderism are sins, and Christians should not advocate for homosexuality and transgenderism. Segregation and American slavery was built upon man-stealing and looking at image bearers of God as lesser than and enslaving them. That's sin. Christians should not stand for those sorts of things. Christians should stand firmly upon their biblical convictions on these straight-line issues. But there are other issues which the Bible does not speak so clearly about, where you can't draw a straight line from Scripture to the political issue. So these are things like immigration, or healthcare, or welfare, or even gun control. These are jagged line issues. That does not mean that they are not important. It just means there's no straight line from scripture to policy. Yes, we can take biblical principles and we can apply them to these political issues, but it's a jagged line, and so Christians may come to different conclusions than you. The question is, again, what are you going to do about that? Does someone having a different stance on how many refugees we allow into our country prevent you from taking the Lord's Supper with them? You may have strong opinions on all of these issues I named. You can ask my wife. I have strong opinions on all of these issues that I have raised. That's good and fine. The question is, are you going to allow others to have just as strong opinions and still be in fellowship with them in the local church? Let me give you a very recent example of this. Brace yourselves. Masks and vaccines. All the air just got sucked out of the room. You may have very strong opinions about masks and vaccines. These past two years have been heated and contentious, but the Bible does not speak directly to these issues. These are jagged line issues. There is no thou shalt or thou shalt not. So the question is, have you been able to have true, genuine Christian unity with brothers and sisters with whom you disagree on those issues? Same with theological issues. There are theological issues which are necessary to divide over, but there are many theological issues which needless division happens. With theological issues, I think it's helpful to think through what's called theological triage. So we have primary, secondary, and tertiary doctrines. Primary doctrines are those which you must believe to be a Christian. So belief in the Trinity, belief in the deity of Jesus Christ, belief in the atonement. To deny these doctrines puts you outside of the camp of orthodox Christianity. We must divide on these doctrines. So, for example, we divide from Mormons, we divide from Jehovah's Witnesses because they deny these core tenets of the faith. That's primary. Secondary doctrines are those that divide denominations. So these are not salvific doctrines, but doctrines like baptism and church polity. Important doctrines, uh, but not salvific. For example, many Presbyterians preach the same gospel that we do, but we should not plant a church with Presbyterians. Because what happens when someone has a baby? Do we baptize them or not, right? We can share unity in the gospel, but we divide into different churches when it comes to secondary issues, and that's okay. Dividing over tertiary issues, these are the divisions that I'm talking about. These are divisions which are not at all primary or secondary issues. These are issues and doctrines in which people in a local church like ours should be able to disagree about and still have genuine Christian unity and fellowship. But because we live in such a hostile environment and culture that if you're not for all the same things I'm for or against all the same things that I'm against or mad about all the same things I'm mad about or have canceled all the same people that I've canceled, 
then we can't have unity. That is not the way of Christ. We must allow for freedom of conscience for these jagged line and tertiary issues. Romans 14 is very instructive for us here. Paul teaches us how to live with one another amongst disagreement and allow for this sort of Christian liberty and graciousness toward one another. Paul teaches us not to quarrel over opinions or to pass judgment upon one another. Paul goes on in even further detail in Galatians chapter five, verse 14 through 26. Go ahead and turn there. I want you to see this. Galatians five, verse 14 through 26. Galatians five, beginning in verse 14. Paul says, for the law, for the whole law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. But if you, dev- if you bite and devour one another, watch out that you are not consumed by one another. But I say, walk by the spirit and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the spirit and the desires of the spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things that you want to do. But if you are led by the spirit, you are not under the law. Now the works of the flesh are evident. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Against such things there is no law. And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with his passions and desires. If we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking one another, envying one another. So do you see how that applies directly to this situation? Notice in that list of grievous sins how fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, and divisions is right there in the middle. So let's stand firm on our biblical convictions, but let's do so with civility, allowing for freedom of conscience. Let's commit to exhibit the fruit of the Spirit even in genuine disagreement. Jesus takes our political and theological divisiveness and he grants us convictional civility. The fourth and final point of application is that Jesus turns rebellion and dissension into submission and peacemaking. Jesus turns rebellion and dissension into submission and peacemaking. So because of our pride and stubbornness, we think that we know what is best. So we rebel against God, we rebel against one another, and we rebel against the authority that God has placed over us. Let me give you three verses for each of those three categories. James 4, 7. Submit yourselves therefore to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Ephesians 5, 21. Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Hebrews 13, 17, obey your leaders and submit to them for they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with groaning for that would be of no advantage to you. So a couple questions to ask ourselves about these three categories. Are you willing to submit to God even when it's not your will? I hope that we are able to pray, not my will, but yours be done. Are you willing to submit to others when you don't get your way? Are you willing to lay aside your preferences and your opinions for the sake of unity? Oh, church, let us seek to outdo one another in showing honor. 
Are you willing to submit to biblically qualified leadership as they lead seeking to follow God's direction? What about if leadership makes a decision that you wouldn't make or that you don't understand? Let's joyfully follow and encourage our leadership as they seek to follow Christ. And then related to our rebellion is that our flesh loves to become quarrelsome and contentious and divisive and unloving. Let me give you four scriptures related to those. Two negative, two positive. Mark 9.50, Jesus says, Salt is good, but if the salt has lost its saltiness, how will you make it salty again? Have salt in yourselves and be at peace with one another. Titus 3, verse 9 through 11. Avoid foolish controversies, genealogies, dissensions, and quarrels about the law, for they are unprofitable and worthless. As for a person who stirs up division, after warning him once and then twice, have nothing more to do with him, knowing that such a person is warped and sinful. He is self-condemned. John 13, 34 through 35, Jesus said, A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. And then Matthew 5, 9. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Christ has taken our rebellion and dissension. He's granted us submission and peacemaking. So let us be a church that lives in the unity that Christ has purchased for us by the power of his Holy Spirit, And may our supernatural unity be an invitation for this lost world to praise the one true and living God. Behold, how good and pleasant it is when brothers dwell together in unity. We now have the opportunity to partake of the Lord's Supper, which is a picture of this supernatural unity we have with one another. This is the meal that makes many one body. In the Lord's Supper, we look back to what Christ has done for us on the cross. We look up to where Christ is seated in the heavenly places as we commune with him spiritually. And we look around. We look to the body that Christ has bought as we commune with one another. And then we look forward to what Christ will do when he returns, where we eat and drink with him in his Father's kingdom. Now this meal is open to everyone who has repented of their sins and believed in Christ alone for salvation, who has followed in Christ's command to be baptized as a believer and who is a member in good standing of a local church that preaches the true gospel. The Lord's Supper is a serious matter. Hear this warning from 1 Corinthians 11. Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then And so eat the bread and drink the cup. For anyone who drinks and eats without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. So let us all take a moment of solemn self-examination. Let's confess and repent of our sins and turn to Christ for forgiveness. And another application, if there is an issue that is causing you to have disunity with the body or discord with a brother or sister in Christ, reconcile in your hearts right now before God. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for the unity that is ours in Christ Jesus. Oh, how good and pleasant it is when brothers and sisters dwell together in unity. 
Lord, let us be a church that displays that sort of supernatural unity and is a display of your glory to the world so that lost and dying world divided on every issue may see what this sort of gospel unity looks like and be drawn into it as you promised that you would do. Lord, save sinners. Unite our hearts and minds together as those who have placed our faith and trust in Christ. Lord, bless this bread and this cup. By partaking together, make us one body. Unite our hearts and minds in the gospel. It's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen.